You're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. The face of HIV disease is again changing. As patients are living longer and more productive lives, managing their care is often in the hands of the primary care provider and not the infectious disease specialist. How do we manage their complications? What are the pearls for the primary care provider? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Sachs. Dr. Sachs is Clinical Director of the HIV Program and the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He has taught at Harvard Medical School for more than 14 years, and he is currently an Associate Professor of Medicine there. He has been a member of the AIDS Clinical Care Editorial Board since 1996 and Editor-in-Chief since 2003. Today we are discussing the complications of HIV disease, pearls for the primary care provider. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Sachs. Thank you for inviting me. What is the history of HIV treatment, and when did it become so effective? We had our first HIV treatment made available to us in the late 1980s. The drug was AZT, and it was only marginally effective. However, it was the best we had, so we did, in fact, put quite a few people on treatment. It wasn't until the mid-1990s, however, that we realized that it was combinations of medicines that really were required both to suppress the virus and improve the immune system. These so-called drug cocktails totally revolutionized HIV therapeutics. The uh, rates of HIV-related deaths um, and complications plummeted. It was really as, as sudden as a period between 1995 and 96, where you saw inpatient hospices closing. You saw the inpatient census in many hospitals of HIV patients um, declining substantially. And, and so the, the modern treatment era really started in about 1996. What were some of the complications of therapy in the early HIV treatment era? The first HIV treatments had a number of complications. One sort of thing that the virologists sometimes downplayed, but the patients all noticed, is that they required a huge number of pills per day. Some of the drugs were not very well absorbed. Some of them had very marginal pharmacokinetics. So it was not uncommon for us to be treating patients with 10, 15, 20, sometimes even 30 pills a day of antiretroviral agents plus all the other drugs that required for both opportunistic infection treatment and the associated medical complications. So pill burden was a huge issue. In addition, many of the drugs had acute side effects, such as gastrointestinal intolerability. One of our most uh, powerful protease inhibitors was ritonavir. Ritonavir was initially available only in a liquid and then became available in a capsule. But even in its capsule formulation, it had extremely high rate of gastrointestinal side effects. There were also drugs that we weren't aware of at the time that had an effect on body shape. These body habitus changes, predominantly fat atrophy or loss of fat in the face, arms, and legs, could be highly stigmatizing to individuals over time. And then there were other people, for whatever reason, had uh, fat accumulation syndromes where they would accumulate large amounts of fat, sometimes in the posterior neck or anterior neck and in the midsection, and that too was highly disfiguring, although that was actually much less common than the fat atrophy problem. There were other problems that occurred, metabolic problems, as well as 
Some of the drugs affected the myelin sheaths of nerves so that people had painful peripheral neuropathy. But all of these things were really felt to be better than the alternative, which was untreated AIDS. AIDS was obviously a death sentence until effective treatment was available. So we had extremely motivated patients who took all of their medications. And the good news was that it enabled them to control the virus and improve their immune system. The bad news was that it was associated with quite a few complications. Are patients still taking dozens of pills per day? They generally are not. It's really extraordinary what has happened with HIV therapeutics. Not only have the drugs become more effective, but they've become way more tolerable. The rate of gastrointestinal toxicity is much, much lower. In addition, there have been co-formulations of drugs, combinations of medicines put into a single pills that lead to much, much lower pill burden. At the extreme end is a collaborative effort between two pharmaceutical companies where they were able to put three different medications, Favarins, Emtricitabine, and Tenofovir, those three medications into a single pill sold under the brand name of Atripla, and it's one pill a day, and that is triple therapy for HIV infection in 2007. It's extremely effective. And the majority of people who take that medication can be successfully treated. So it's very uncommon for people to need to take so many medications. Really, the hardest patients to treat in some way are the ones who, not surprisingly, are the ones who've had the longest history of HIV infection and and underwent some of the treatments from the the, um, early early phases of therapy back in the early and mid-1990s. That's incredible to think of them taking only one pill a day compared to what they went through most of us remember five or 10 or 15 years ago. It's really extraordinary. I sometimes find myself with patients telling them, in fact, just today, especially if they haven't updated their regimen, that they can cut back significantly on the number of pills they're taking simply by switching to co-formulated products. But what are some of the complications now? So we still deal with the uh, hyperlipidemia related to HIV therapy. It varies from person to person. And one thing we realize now is that HIV itself in addition to causing immune deficiency, causes disorders of lipid metabolism and causes probably also insulin sensitivity. And these sort of set the stage for the effect of the drugs. The drugs can further augment uh, this toxicity by inducing their own disorders of lipid metabolism. For example, we could have patients who are well-controlled from the HIV standpoint but are really struggling to get their cholesterol numbers under control, or they have marked hypertriglyceridemia, or they have extremely low HDLs, a very common pattern seen in HIV. So that, that is a, one toxicity that we deal with quite a bit. Another is that there are individual problems with, with almost all of the drugs. Very few of them have no side effects. So, for example, in that triple combination product that I mentioned, um, one of the drugs can potentially cause kidney toxicity. One of the drugs potentially causes central nervous system toxicity. One of the drugs potentially can be teratogenic to women of childbearing potential uh, who, who want to become pregnant. So, so there, there is really no side effect free agent, but there's certainly tremendous improvement compared with the, uh, with the early days of therapy. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Sachs, Clinical Director of the HIV Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and we're discussing complications of treatment of HIV or pearls for the primary care provider. Dr. Sachs, what is lipodystrophy? What's the cause and how is it treated? Lipodystrophy is a term that's sometimes used to describe the constellation of problems that I've 
mentioned earlier in this discussion, um, including changes in body habitus, the fat atrophy in the arms, legs, and face, plus uh, the alterations in metabolism, the high plasma lipid values and the difficulty with insulin sensitivity. It's likely that each one of these, while potentially related or seen in the same patient, can occur individually and may be occurring with different mechanisms. And so as a result, saying what the specific cause is can be quite difficult. We do know, at least, that the problem of lipoatrophy appears related to a class of medications that we commonly, or in fact almost invariably, use in HIV infection, and those are the nucleoside-reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Some of those drugs seem particularly potent in inhibiting not only reverse transcriptase, but also a key enzyme in mitochondria. And inhibition of that mitochondria, mitochondrial enzyme can lead to fat atrophy. And this is a, a look that people recognize in areas of high HIV prevalence as being strongly associated with HIV in its treatment. And it's one, unfortunately, that's being recapitulated internationally as HIV therapeutics are rolled out, and especially as they're using some of the drugs that we no longer use very much in the United States because we have safer agents, but they're very inexpensive and hence can be used in developing countries. So the cause is a, is a bit hard to, to pinpoint and their joke that people make about lipodystrophy syndrome is sort of analogous to the joke that people make about pornography, is that you can't precisely define it, but you know it when you see it. And indeed, almost all of our patients who have lipodystrophy really know it by looking at themselves in the mirror, and we can recognize it in them as well. The way it's treated is to avoid the drugs that are most likely to cause the problem at the outset, and we're much better at that now than we used to be. Certain agents, for example, the drug Stavudine or D4T, very rarely used today. And then also long-term use of the drug AZT, which is the first drug approved for HIV, can also cause lipoatrophy. And the, the other is that there, there can be alterations in the medications. If people are on some of the more toxic meds, one can sort of switch them, especially if they have never developed viral resistance to any of their treatments. If medication side effects are a problem, can treatment interruptions help? Treatment interruptions had a vogue in HIV therapy dating back to about 2000, the year 2000. It was, we were so successful in treating patients that we noticed that they were healthy even sometimes when they came in and acknowledged, you know, doctor, I've stopped my medications three months ago and I'm still fine. And then we measured their blood counts and yes, their, their virus maybe had rebounded a bit, but their CD4 cell count was still in a safe range. So it was theorized that if we could take people off therapy periodically, that we would expose them to less of the drug and more importantly, expose them to less of the drug toxicity. It has turned out through very carefully conducted prospective clinical trials that almost every treatment interruption study uh, has not met that goal. People who go off therapy periodically run the risk of obviously both HIV viral rebound and potential HIV-related complications, but probably most surprisingly, appeared to have a higher rate of non-HIV-related complications also. And it may be that the inflammatory component of viral rebound is partially triggering this. It may be that just uncontrolled viral replication, period, is bad for body organs, whether they induce immune deficiency or not. But suffice to say that treatment interruptions has turned out to be actually not a good way to manage HIV drug toxicity. Far better is to actually go on to something that is less toxic or alternatively, in the case of hyperlipidemia, potentially to initiate lipid-lowering therapy. What does HIV treat treatment cost? Is it cost-effective? 
Well, HIV treatment turns out to cost quite a bit. Triple therapy for HIV infection can cost anywhere between eight and $12,000 a year. And that sounds very expensive, and it is. On the other hand, you really want to look at what you're getting for your money. And one could easily argue that HIV therapy is extremely cost-effective. That is, that although we're paying a good amount of money for the medications, the amount of extra survival we're getting for that medication intervention is extraordinary. And formal cost-effective analyses have been done that have shown that HIV therapy is among the most cost-effective interventions that we have in treatment of a chronic disease. It generally falls in the order of between fifteen and $30,000 per quality-adjusted life year. And as you may know, uh, anything below $50,000 per quality-adjusted life year is felt to be a cost-effective intervention in the United States. I want to thank Dr. Paul Sachs, who's been our guest, and we have been discussing complications of treatment of HIV, pearls for the primary care provider. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Don't go away. We have more great segments coming up.